This is Jason Albert, and you are listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. Post Pyeongchang, post World Cup, it's been a whirlwind tour for Jessie Diggins. Where hasn't she been? As a recent gold medalist, her time and attention have been in high demand. Just a few of those commitments involve the following. An appearance at the Minnesota State Capitol, where she advocated for a Minneapolis World Champs, And just this past Wednesday, April 25th, Diggins was in Washington, D.C. on behalf of the Citizens Climate Lobby and Protect Our Winners, lobbying members of Congress about the effects of climate change on winter snow sports. We reached Diggins on April 26th when she was sitting in a Boston park enjoying some spring sunshine. In this interview, we run the gamut of topics from how she's using her new post-Olympic gold platform to her thoughts on an outstanding World Cup season. All right. Well, you have been obviously been very busy. I mean, I'm kind of off the radar for social media, but I know like anytime I kind of check Instagram, you are in high demand. And uh, just first off, you know, what have you been up to, I guess, since the World Cup uh, concluded? Um, yeah, you know, it's interesting. Everyone kind of said, oh, this is going to change your life. And I was like, no, it's not. It's not gonna. And it turns out it really has in terms of the amount of free time that I now don't have, (laughs) but all for a good cause, right? It's all for the right reasons. I mean, I just went to DC yesterday on a day trip to talk about the impacts of climate change on our sport. You know, I'm trying to make sure that we don't erase the chances of our grandkids getting to learn how to ski because we weren't responsible enough. And so they're all really good reasons. And I've, I've realized that, um, you know, part of winning an Olympic gold medal is that suddenly you're given this platform um, and, and a much louder voice. And when you talk about things, people start to really listen, which is, you know, when you think about it, it's kind of terrible because you should have listened anyway, but, um, but suddenly you really catch people's attention when you say, Hey, I'm bringing my gold with me and we're going to go talk to some senators about why this is important. And suddenly you get a lot of attention about these issues that you feel are very important. Um, and, and, you know, suddenly, you know, I've been asking for years for us to be able to try to have a world cup in the United States, but suddenly it feels like we can make it happen because people are interested in cross country skiing. And I think that's awesome because there's been a lot of hugely positive um, I'd say like side effects of the Olympics. And so suddenly we're able to inspire more people able to, you know, create more opportunities for cross country ski enthusiasts. And I think that's a really awesome thing. So yes, I've definitely been much, much busier. Like when I go home to Minnesota, I'll be home for about 14 days and only two of those days I don't have things planned. Like I'm I'm just, it's, it is just so busy, but it's all, things that I really care about. And so I feel really fortunate to be able to try to make a difference um, and and inspire more people. And I don't want to jump past any of the questions, but it seems like relevant right here. And I'm sure you've heard from lots of different athletes and different uh, from different sports, or maybe you haven't, but you know, that sort of be careful after you win a gold medal or something, you know, world champs or what have you that, 
your the demands on your time are going to increase exponentially and just be careful to one protect personal time and then protect like professional time when it comes to training. Um, yeah. Do you feel like you have those things sort of in place already to kind of uh, make sure next year is, you know, whatever you want it to be professionally? Right. Because the whole, what's, what's hard for people to understand is in our sport, we're training twice a day, six days a week. Yeah. And we can't just get on a plane and go anywhere and do anything. Um, and the whole reason that we are getting these demands is because we trained hard and became successful in our sport in the first place, right? So it is kind of like, okay, we got to bring it back to training here and make sure that I can replicate that success right, in the future right. so it's not a one-and-done deal. Um, but I think, you know, this past year I've had a lot of demands on my time leading up to the Olympics, so it was, in a sense, a little bit of a preview of what was going to happen, a little bit of practice. And I've been working with an agent the last two years, and he's been really helping me um, figure out when I have to say no, when my when my calendar is full. And, you know, I, I block out training camps and the highest training weeks. I just we put them in red on the calendar, and, and nothing happens during those weeks, you know, like, no matter who the request is from or what it's for, if I'm at a training camp, the team comes first and the camp comes first and I'm not leaving for anything. So uh, that's been a really important boundary for me to set. And because there are going to be requests and there's going to be even, you know, they're going to say, oh, we'd love to have you here and we're going to donate all this money to this thing. And you go, you know, at the end of the day, I got to be there for my team. They don't come second to anything. So um, I have been learning how to set those limits and, and people have been really respectful of that. So that's been helpful. Just And then to go back a little bit, you know, you were in D.C. on behalf of Protect Our Winters. You know, anything that kind of caught your attention in terms of, wow, people are, are more receptive to the message? Just curious what, what your sentiments were leaving D.C. and reflecting on that a bit. Yeah, you know... It can sometimes be hard to remain positive when you're talking about taking action on climate change in the current state of things in the United States. But I was really hopeful leaving the Capitol after everything we did that day. We went around and talked to um, senators and House representatives from both sides of the aisle saying, look, here's how, you know, I'm not a scientist. I'm not going to load you down with facts. It's easy to find those. That's not my job here. I'm just talking about what I have seen personally, like traveling around the World Cup, racing almost exclusively now on man-made snow, seeing green grass in January on the sides of the race course, you know, and seeing seeing glaciers recede as, you know, like Stacey Cook was talking about, the, she's been to four Olympics and she's saying, you know, the glaciers we used to train on, the chairlifts don't even reach the snow anymore. Like seeing very tangible effects and getting to share those stories and helping people put a, a face on why it's, important because um, as I pointed out we're kind of we're kind of the canaries in the coal mine you know it, climate change affects everyone globally it's not it shouldn't be a political issue there's no taking sides it's everyone's affected by it but skiers are the ones who often see it first because we're literally watching the glaciers melt underneath our feet as we're training on them um, so we're, we're often the ones who notice it first and we're often the ones who speak up about it a lot because it is so important to the, the ski industry, to the people we care about. Um, so that was, uh, it was hugely positive and I, I hope that we had, um, a good effect on, you know, uh, 
on those people as they decide to go forward with um, working together on finding positive solutions. Thanks. Okay, so let's switch gears a little bit and kind of talk ski specific stuff if that's cool with you. Um, it is, yeah. Uh, you know, I obviously was in Pyeongchang. So that's it. I definitely noticed from you. I was like, okay, she seems very locked in, um, very focused. Um, and obviously your performances were astounding on every level. And, and we can get into that. But I, that from the top of my head, uh, yeah, I think you, you did do every event. I did, yeah. And I don't know, and maybe you'd know, were there any other women who did every event at the, at the games? Yeah, as far as I know, I believe there were two cross-country skiers in the world who did every event, and the other skier was Krista Parmakoski. Ah, okay. I was wondering. I was like, okay, Parmakoski seemed like she was out there a ton. Okay. She was, yeah. So she and I were kind of event buddies that way. We went and did everything. Um, and yeah, it was it was exhausting, but it was really cool getting a chance to do every event and you know, going into the games, you know, far out from the games, I definitely wasn't initially planning on trying to race everything um, because it is hugely expensive in terms of energy. Right. Um, right. But as the year was progressing and, and my classic skiing was really coming up quickly, I was kind of going, you know, I don't know anymore what my weakest event really is. Like, I, I don't think there's anything I should not be racing here. And um, I was able to prove my hunch correct by finishing uh, seventh in my worst race of the games. But, you know, going into it, we kind of started seriously looking at the schedule with our coaches and going, okay, how can I pull this off? And, and how are we going to do that? And it came down to being, like you said, really locked in and focused. You know, I was moving through the mix zone just intent on making sure everyone got their quote. You know, they sure. traveled all the way there and they were covering our sport, which is hugely important, but making sure I gave everyone enough time and then giving myself enough time to, you know, change, eat, drink, get through anti-doping as efficiently as possible, cool down, you know, like get, like as soon as I finished one event, I was on to the next event. Like in my head, I was like, okay, I'm done with the 10K onto the relay, you know, like just one thing to the next because I had to in order to get through all of it. Yeah, just like seriously, you mean thinking about all the athletes that were there and kind of following it very closely and looking at, you know, as I'm writing up a story, I pull up the fist page and I'm looking at, okay, what was this gal or this dude's results longitudinally and you know, there's lots of ups and downs in performances. I mean, you were... Like you said, your worst was a seventh. There were a couple of fifth, like three fifth places, I think. Yep. <laughs> and you were. I was the first person out of a medal twice by under five seconds. So I know what it feels like to get the wooden trophy for sure. <laughs> by less than a couple seconds, I think, in each of those races, it seemed like, like very close. Mm -hmm. Obviously, focusing on yourself, I mean, like, what was that recovery like? Just like into sensory deprivation, massage, fueling, and that's it? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was interesting because crossing the line of that 10K, you know, I had been in metal position and I pushed myself so hard. And I finished that race and before I even knew that I hadn't gotten the medal, I thought, you know what? I just put together one of the best races in my career. I, You know, if, even if I could go back and do it all again, I couldn't change anything. Because I literally could not go harder. 
And that's a good feeling because you, if you can honestly look back and go, wow, I skied technically one of the better races I've ever raced. I paced it as well as I could. I gave it my all. That's the only way to survive the mix zone afterwards because, you know, I had come to peace with the fact that, yeah, I was seconds out of a medal, but I was being on par with Mari Bjorgen. I mean, I'm not skiing poorly right, right now. I right. need to be proud of myself, and I am proud of myself. But then you go through the mix zone, and not you specifically, um, but a lot of people will try to tear you apart. They're fishing. They're looking for the reaction. They want to be the one that captures the epic breakdown, right? And so, especially the ones with for cameras. Sure. So, you know, they're going, wow, you must be so disappointed. And I'm going, don't tell me how to feel. You know, like, I am so proud of what I did out there. And I could not give it anything more than 100%. It's mathematically impossible. You can't give it more than what you have on that day. And there were other women who did a slightly better job than me. And I'm happy for them because I know what it is to be in their shoes. I know what it feels like to put together one of the best races of your life and to just give it everything you have. And so for me... The biggest thing was just believing in myself, believing in my plan and going, you know what? I'm one of the fittest women on the planet right now. I know that. And I, I know that the people who really matter know that. You know, my coaches believe in me. My teammates have always believed in me. They know I can pull it off when it counts in the relay and that I perform well under pressure. And I'm going to just keep on keeping on with my plan and not let, you know, any sideways remarks from media or other competitors even when they're well meant um like oh i'm so sorry for you kind of thing you know you're like no i don't need that right now so you have to really grow that thick skin and be able to you know post what you have to on social media and then get off it without looking at it and you know have someone else run what i call troll patrol which is where I go through my social media channels. And, you know, like, it's, it's my personal social media. It's not a debate forum. It's not a chat center. You know, I, right, and if right. somebody, you know, especially from a fake account, if there's posts that are inappropriate or just plain sour sounding, I reserve the right to ban those people, and that's fine. And so um, I've especially been dealing with that since my climate talks at the White House. And so... Um, you know, maybe during the Olympics, you have to have someone else run troll patrols so that you kind of live inside your own carefully cultivated bubble. But that's what I found is necessary to be able to pull off repeated race efforts. Gosh, that's it's really interesting. I, I'm always, yeah, I suppose if people follow the sport, uh, and I and I've talked to a lot of folks about this, for example, maybe before you guys won the gold that every other person out there in the starting line, in particular, when you talk about those like 10 to 15 women that you're racing against, and it's such a tight field, they're all peaking for this particular race or these series of races. It's not just Jesse Diggins and Keegan Randall out there, you know? Right. Uh, yeah, it's, it is interesting. I just always find it surprising that people would actually make any sort of negative comment on anybody sort of giving it their all out there, but I suppose they're human beings. So, you know, yeah, you know, it's, it's funny you say that because I was at, um, I've been fortunate enough to go to a lot of playoff hockey and basketball. Yeah, this yeah. spring. It's been really fun. And I was with my boyfriend and one of his buddies from college hockey and he's watching the game and he's going, man, in, in theory, it's so simple. And when you're out there, it is so hard to win. Yeah. It is so hard. And he goes, 
he, uh, he said something really, really funny that really resonated with me. Um, I'll try to remember the quote exactly, but I think it was, it's such a simple game when you're not the one playing it. Yeah. And it really made sense because, you know, anyone can tell you how to win when you're sitting on the couch. You know, it's so easy when you're not the one out there. You go, oh, you should have done this or your technique is sloppy here. And it's so easy to write an op-ed or, or comment namelessly, facelessly on someone's Instagram. Like, oh, I can't believe you started this order or the relay or whatever. Oh, right, right. You know, people tear our coaches apart. But it's such an easy job when it's not yours. Right, right. And I think it's hard for people to remember that sometimes. That, wow, if you were the one there doing it, racing it, coaching it, waxing it, would you have done better in that moment under that pressure? I don't know. So I, I think personally, it's not fair to post anything negative about something that you have never done and never pulled off yourself. Um, and even if you have, leave someone else alone about it. But, you know, that's just how I sure. feel about it. So unfortunately, running Troll Patrol is something I've really had to do in recent years. You know, I remember... Uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here. So like watching your last leg of the team sprint um, and you're coming down that last hill. And I think it was a sweeping, you know, it's that tight right hand turn, I think um, mm -hmm. coming down that hill. And you guys, I think the three of you were all together. Um, it was, you know, Fala and Stina. And did you swing? I mean, did you almost swing out of the V boards coming around that corner? Yeah, so what was interesting about that is on the final steep uphill, I because uh, so many people have asked me about the tactics of it, so I'll just give oh, you the sure. rundown. Um, I had a choice to make. I could either really, really surge and risk you know, burning all the matches I had left, which weren't many, um, and try to go around the outside and come into the downhill first, or I could ease up very slightly. I mean, we were hammering, so it wouldn't be much of a knees up, but I could get into third place and draft them on the downhill and try to slingshot them. And I decided to do that because I know that downhills are my strength. And if you can draft someone, you come in with much higher momentum while being able to stand up more and rest your legs. And psychologically, I like being the one making the pass rather than feeling someone breathing down your Next. Yeah. Um, and so that's why I was in third coming down there. And it, the corners were getting sketchy. Ice was yeah. opening up, not to mention your legs are blown. You know, you're filled with lactic acid. And so we all swung really wide off of that corner. And it was interesting because technically, I think we did go off the course, but you were allowed to because it was only the, our branches there. Yeah. And so you're allowed to cross the branches at any point. You just have to re-enter your half of the course before you hit the V-boards. And it got close. I mean, it, it, you go back and watch the video and you're like, wow, that was close. And then, of course, I'm right behind Cena and she's swinging her poles in the air and one of them catches me in the face. So you see me put my, putting my hands up, trying to protect my face and stuff. So, I mean, there was, there was some fun, hairy moments that made it pretty exciting. But coming out of that downhill corner with a lot of momentum and slightly fresher legs, that's what allowed me to accelerate around Stina in those final 100 meters and really come into it, you know, not fresh, but with a little higher energy because I'd been pushing the pace on lap two and earlier in lap three trying to tire them out because I'm not a pure sprinter. And that's that's my specific strength. You know, Team sprints aren't really about sprinting. It's more of a distance endurance sprint. 
And it's perfect for hybrids like me that do everything because if you can push the pace and get people tired, when it comes down to fast twitch muscles, nobody has fast twitch left. Right. And so that's where I had the chance to get those final 100 meters. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Um, many, many, many of my friends now know who you are, but prior to the games or winning the medal probably were semi-familiar, but to a person, they were all most excited about the racing. Yeah, I mean, the gold was yeah. icing the cake, but they're like, oh my God, when when Diggins did this or Randall did that, um, which was cool to hear because that's very accessible as how it plays out actually on the course. So that was cool to see. Yeah, largely thanks to Chad Salmola's call. I mean, that created in itself, his commentary created so many instant fans of the sport. It was amazing. Beyond the Olympics, an incredible season. You did every World Cup race except the two in Lati, a tour to ski podium, uh, second overall in the World Cup. You know, I'm just kind of curious, what were your thoughts, you know, about your season when it, you know, for us just covering the sport, knowing someone like you is probably peaking for the Olympics, from a podium standpoint, it was a little bit of a slow start. And, you know, just what was going through your mind? I'm, you know, maybe that was by design. I'm just curious what you were thinking about maybe during pre period one pre tortoiseski. Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, I'd sat down with Cork and we said, you know what, if I need, if, I'm, if, we're, try, if we're trying to do something that's never been done, we need to have a pretty epic peak, right? You know, the Olympics needs to be the best shape in my life. And to do that in February, um, period one, I can't come in swinging quite as hard. Um, I kept a really high training load through that period and intentionally kind of uh, not swamped my period one. You know, I wasn't racing poorly, but it was nothing compared to period four and how I was racing, you know, post-peak. So it wasn't hard on my self-confidence. Uh, for sure, because I was racing feeling very slightly flat. You know, you, you can feel when you're on and when you have that last racing gear and you can just unlock what your body has and just push and push and push. And you, to know that feeling and you get really comfortable in it. And when you don't have that feeling, you also know, like you're aware that you're not in your highest form at that moment. And I knew it and we were talking about it. And I was saying, you know, like, I'm not worried because I trust my body, I trust my coach, and I trust that the peaking plan that he's put together, you know, it's worked for me multiple world championships before, it's going to work again. But it is hard to be racing below where you know your capacity is on purpose. That is hard. And um, for me, it was definitely a, a test of my belief in myself and my self-confidence. And I was able to come through and by the tour to ski, I was, you know, racing at a level where I was going, oh yeah, this is that feeling. I've got it again. I'm back. You know, like this is why we were so patient. And then being able to peak at the Olympics, having a very successful Olympics, and then riding out the season on that peak, feeling like, wow, I'm still racing in the best shape of my life. It's, you know, it's a good feeling to to know that all that waiting and all that patience was really worth it. And it paid off in a huge way. Um, and I think, you know, all those couch critics we discussed earlier really had to shut up when they realized that, oh, the coaches do know what they're doing. Um, <laughs> okay, I guess I'm going to stop doubting everyone now. Um, but yeah, it, it was definitely hard. And I think 
next year, you know, there's world championships. It's a similar time of the year. I always come into the season slower. That's my game. That's how I run it. Um, I'm comfortable doing it that way. And, you know, maybe I'll try to start getting into racing shape, you know, maybe one more week earlier. Um, but I think that's always been kind of my deal is to come in slower and then trust myself. And so every year I get a little bit better at it. But for sure, it is hard. For me, this kind of leads into this next question. I mean, and, and this, you've got your gold medal. My sort of journalism gold medal would be to get Jason Cork on this podcast. So I'm. Oh, oh good luck with that one. He doesn't love doing public things. <laughs> I know. I, I am. I'm going to be slowly but surely work this one, though. But in, in any event, he's sort of this, you know, he's he's on social media a little bit. He's been interviewed here and there. And I've heard this from you before. I've heard this from so many people in the sport that he's like a this genius type savant. And I mean that like in a very positive way. Like he's just very focused, very able to specifically tap into what makes it work for you? What were those pep talks like coming into the games and during the games between the two of you? I mean, I would see you out. I'd always kind of, on those nice sunny days, even when it was cold, I would go out and try and get the, some sun in the, mm-hmm. in the main stadium area. And I'd see you and Cork out warming up. What is he telling you? How does he kind of keep you focused on on the task at hand? Yeah. I mean, everything you've heard is correct. Cork is an absolute genius. He's, I've met a lot of smart people in my life and he's without a doubt the sharpest person I will ever meet. Um, he's always looking for the next thing. I mean, he's always reading new studies about sports science. He's always checking himself and what he knows to make sure that he's on top of the latest research in training thought. And I think that's really cool because it takes um, someone who's very comfortable in themselves without a huge ego to always be looking for the next thing and he's always going okay well we, we know that you respond really well to this type of technique drill and what if we try this or what if we try that and he's always looking for ways for me to help make it fun because um, he knows I like to have fun so he'll literally write into my training plan you know 60 minutes of dancing that's your workout for this day because he knows that makes me really happy so it's really cool because he's always trying to figure out you know how it's going to work for me knowing that every athlete's mentality and their, you know, physical makeup of how they respond to training is going to be different. Um, so it, it's been a really incredible experience. I've worked with him since I was getting out of high school. So he's known me and how I react to training and mentally how I react to racing and stress really well. Um, and I feel really lucky in that he's also my wax tech. So I get to see my coach and tech uh, immediately before every single race. So we're warming up on the course and we have our own little ski testing system and we're throwing jokes back and forth. We keep it really lighthearted and really easy, but uh, we're definitely, you know, we go back and forth on skis and we'll say, okay, I'm really feeling like this one gives back a little more and he'll say, yeah, me too. And we'll be swapping skis out. And so before the race, most of it's focused on the skis, but we'll also trade notes on how to ski the course. You know, I'll say something like, um, for the team sprint, I'll say something like, you know, I think really taking this first corner wide and then cutting in really sharply at the end is going to be good because there's ice opening up. 
where everyone's skiing the same line. He'll go, yeah, I think, I think so too. Like I see the same thing. And so we'll kind of, you know, he'll help me check my knowledge of the course and I'll bounce ideas off of him. Like I really think going out really hard on lap two is going to tire people out. And he'll go, yep, I agree. You know, and it's great because he's like my sounding board that way. And he'll contribute a lot of ideas. Like, Hey, I really noticed, um, you know, this or that about the course. And I think this section really applies to your strengths. So this is where you can drop people and I'll go, Oh yeah. Yeah. I think so too. Um, so it's really cool. You know, at the limp at the Olympics, there's a lot of confidence boosting that needs to happen for sure. Because you know, it's, it's, the ultimate test of um, your sporting event. You only get one chance every four years. Um, and I'd be up at like 11.30 at night talking with Cork about, you know, strategy for the team sprint and running over every possible scenario and what I'm going to do and just bouncing ideas off of him. And he's just such a solid rock. He's always there. He's very dependable. And he has an incredible work ethic. So whenever I need to talk to him, he would drop anything and, and be there for for me to, you know, say like, oh my gosh, I'm really feeling uh, nervous about this part of the course. Can we talk about it? Um, and the same with the same with Matt Wickham. You know, I, I distinctly remember sitting with him on the floor at midnight on on my yoga mat, going, I'm really nervous about this, but I really think I need to be the second leg of the relay because we were debating order, right? Because we weren't sure where other countries were going to put their order. And I was going, I feel really comfortable this way. And here's why. And and this is my two cents on it. And, you know, I just, I just remember having these conversations with them and, and hearing coaches say like, okay, we, we, we trust you and your knowledge and um, we're going to, you know, put you where you, we think that you can be most helpful to the team. And it's really cool because they've really been there there for us in so many different scenarios, um, taking so much of their personal time to keep us athletes um, feeling grounded in a, in a really stressful time in your life. I mean, the Olympics is fun, don't get me wrong, but when you're there with all eyes on you and a target on your back, it can also be the most stressful time you get every four years. So it's important to have those people in your life. That that Just that concept of like having the target on your back, I, I don't think I wrote this into that last question, but I think I think I maybe took that out. Oh yeah, you know what? I, I said, what did I write here? You're on everybody's radar, or Mark Skier. And I think I had Target on your back, but I was like, that just sounds, <laughs> and I just was like, okay. <laughs> it sounds terrible, doesn't it? <laughs> but it's true. It's true. <laughs> yeah, so you are, you know, I, I don't even know when, I'd have to kind of look, you know, from someone covering the sport, like when did all of a sudden, like Jesse have that Target? And it clearly you know, I'm sure coming out of the tour to ski, everybody was like, all right, Diggins is in that equation at this point now for real. So you will be marked. And, you know, how does that play into how you perceive, say, strategy, you know, moving forward into this next cycle? Uh, you know, that, that's interesting because I, I only used to feel the extreme target on my back pressure when it was a 5K skate and everyone kind of expected me to win. Um, um, but now I'm feeling it in a lot of different events and just in general. I feel, you know, this this past season of all these sprints I qualified for, there was only one where I didn't make the finals. So you do start to feel pressure, like people are expecting you to just make the finals or just, it's a 10K skate, why don't you just go podium, you know? And, and in a way that doesn't always feel fair because you're like, you know, it is pretty hard. 
um, to do that <laughs> consistently. But um, and in another way, you think, okay, now we know we've really come to a place where we've made it when you start feeling that pressure. And, you know, I look to examples and role models like Keegan and Marit Bjorgen and, you know, Heidi Wang and Ingvild are dealing with this sort of thing all the time. And, you know, to be honest, a lot yeah. more than, than me because they're also getting you know, tabloids in Norway following them. You know, like, it's, it's such a mainstream sport over there. I really have nothing to complain of when it comes to pressure. Um, but, you know, going forward, I... I tend to think, you know what, this, the strategies in terms of training, working with my sports psychologist, um, those have gotten me this far, and they work. And so I'm not going to change anything. I'm not doing any radical new training plans or new schools of thought. I'm just going to keep doing what works for me and keep, you know, working on growing a thicker skin and and ignoring the sort of offhand comments or outside pressure that's placed on me because that's what makes me race fast you know you don't race fast because someone else says okay go win it like that doesn't change anything it's not going to make you right. go win it it just makes you nervous um and so you always say okay thank you i appreciate your support and then you go do your strategy and your plan anyway um and, I, and i'm not trying to sound ungrateful i appreciate the support we get but i think it's easy to start um feeling that pressure put, being put on your shoulders by a lot of outside sources and then it's easy to start putting pressure on yourself um from the inside feeling like oh my gosh like all these people are watching they you know they've been cheering for me i really need to i need really need to make them proud you know when in reality the people that matter are going to be proud of you no matter what you know even if you completely fail and bomb or whatever um so I think it is important to remember that and going forward, just keep, keep doing what got me here in the first place. Okay. Do you have time for one more question? I do. I actually am kind of curious your relationship with Solomon. And this comes from, I spoke to Noah a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about his career and he's like, yeah, I was an athlete. I really wasn't too interested in the technical side, just put me on the fastest ski possible. And it sounds like, and maybe you can speak to this, Solomon's really good about bringing one-off skis to you and to Harvey and, you know, experimenting with them. You know, how, how involved are you with that process and like understanding that I'm imagining you have lots of skis? Yeah, uh, we, we do have lots of skis. Um, you know, to be honest, I've never been much of uh, like a, a gear geek. I don't, I can't explain to you the science behind why certain waxes work or even the science behind why certain skis work. I just can tell you if they're fast based on the way they feel when I see them. And that's where I think I'm most useful to Solomon because we'll just go out there and test the skis and say, wow, this ski really feels like it gives back. It's really flexible. It's an easy ride. I really like the ski. I can't tell you why other than the feelings that I have on it. So it's not very scientific, but I definitely, I love the way that Cork and I work with Solomon because it's been an incredible experience getting to work with them. They're amazing reps on the World Cup and in the U.S. Um, but how it works for me on the World Cup is, you know, Solomon throughout the year will continue manufacturing skis. So, you know, they'll come to us, say, in Lillehammer with this new type of Clister Classic ski. They'll say, hey, we've been tweaking some things here's our top two skis from this line. Try them out. Let me know what you think. And more often than not, I end up racing on them because they're so fast. And so I went through a year where I raced on, I think, 13 different pairs of skis um, just because 
they were so good in so in such different types of conditions and they kept bringing me new ones and I kept going oh my god this is even better than the one before it's amazing um but what, what's cool about it is Cork and I will test them out and we'll say wow here's what we really like about it and if there is something off we'll say hey it feels like this ski is you know say it's kicking out the back and they'll go oh okay awesome we're gonna we're gonna work on that and they do they go out and like a month later, they come back and they, and they go, okay, we, we tried to fix that. Here's the new prototype. Try it out. And it's amazing because they're completely egoless. It's not this, we're the best in the world. We know how to do it right. Even though personally, obviously, I do think they're the best in the world. I wouldn't race on them if I didn't. But they don't have that ego. And because of that, they're always willing to look for the next thing. They're always willing to change. They're willing to adapt. They're always trying new things. Every time we talk to them, they're going, you know, we're still working hard on this. We think we can do better. And I'm going, guys, I had the best skis in the world today. They go, we know, but we can do even better. And, and that's so impressive to me. I don't know that there's that many ski companies that really have that attitude. And it's such an honor working with them because they really, truly partner with the athletes. And, and you know, they're taking into account all the feedback that we give them to try to give us the best experience possible and to help us win. Not just to make us look good, but they want us to be happy skiing on their skis. And so it's, it's been a really cool time. And so while I can't say that I'm a huge, you know, gearhead, um, I am totally geeky when it comes to working with Solomon and feeling the difference because we'll give him feedback on how his ski feels when it glides and they get it and they come back and, and they've, and they've changed the feeling and it's really incredible. Well, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. And, um, Safe travels back home for your couple weeks. Great. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Diggins interview and hope you are enjoying the spring.